Hello and welcome to Living Breathing Medicine, a podcast where two family practice doctors invite other healthcare providers to have candid conversations about their careers, their patients, and their most memorable moments in medicine. Through these stories of human compassion and vulnerability, we explore what good medicine really is at its core. I'm Dr. Cecily Havert, and on today's episode, we explore with Dr. Lee Lewis what it's like to take care of patients who refuse our recommendations, but want us as their doctors. How do we remain true to practicing good medicine while making sure that we treat the patient as an individual and respect their decisions, even when they don't align with what we know to be the standard of care? And why do they keep coming back to us? We discuss this and a lot more on today's episode of Living, Breathing, Medicine. Dara, thank you so much for being here today. You really have such a special relationship with all of your patients. But let's jump right in and uh, have you tell us a little bit about a patient who really stands out to you. Eileen is a 54-year-old woman who has had heart disease since she was 39. She had her first heart attack. And at that time, she was a smoker, but had no idea that there was anything else going on in terms of health risk. She felt like she was a healthy 39-year-old. And during that hospitalization, she was diagnosed with diabetes, which has turned out to be a really difficult problem to treat for her. But anyway, she had she had several blockages, got several stents. And then a month later, came back with instant restenosis, had to have more stents placed. And so here by the age of 40, she's had four or five stents. I meet her about five or six years later, by which time she's had a couple more heart attacks and a couple more stents and has been told she needs bypass surgery. And she refused bypass surgery because she said that she had a premonition that if she went under anesthesia, she would die on the table. And so she insisted on just being managed medically. And at that point, her her team was not comfortable with that plan. And so she was seeking a different care plan. She was seeking a doctor who would listen to her, basically, and who would be able to still care for her even if she refused bypass surgery. Mm -hmm. She found me at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've, I've taken care of her for about 10 years. Of all the patients in with whom engage in shared decision making, this is probably the most severe example of shared decision making. It's really not shared because she kind of makes the decisions and I (laughs) go along with it. Sounds Um, like it, but. So things like, for example, her A1C is 11 and she won't take anything for her diabetes except metformin. For some reason, she finds metformin to be acceptable. She won't use insulin. She won't try any of the newer meds. She won't take anything for her cholesterol and her triglycerides. This is going to be shocking to you. Her triglycerides are over 2000. Oh my goodness. How she's still walking. As a cardiologist, how can, how... (laughs) You have I'm sure no you idea. just shudder every time you look at her labs. Every time. Every time she walks in my office, every time she picks up the phone and calls me, every time I draw labs on her, I cannot believe that I am her so-called cardiologist and she's walking around with triglycerides of 2000. It goes against every grain in my body to manage somebody who won't do any of the things that I know will help her live a longer, healthier life. So she does take an ACE inhibitor. She does take aspirin. So how did she decide that those medicines were okay for her? Is, are there certain medicines that are okay for her and some, certain medicines that aren't? Yes. So her main reasoning is that she has known people who've had bad reactions to statins. 
and had bad reactions to these diabetes meds. So she doesn't want to go there. That's the main reason for refusing the diabetes meds and the statins. She did accept Berlinta for a while after the stent. So she was on that dual antiplatelet therapy for a period of time. But during that time, she couldn't box. And her main source of stress relief is recreational boxing. Okay. So every Love time it. I saw her in those months, she would say, you know, when can I come off the Berlinta? And I was like, after a year after your stent, she's like, that, I'll be dead by then if I can't box because I have no way to relieve my stress. Nothing else does it. So after six months, we stopped the Berlinta and she went back to boxing and she did not have acute closure of her multiple stents. Thank goodness. But, you know, every time these things happen, it's a it's a serious compromise that I don't feel comfortable with, obviously. Mm -hmm. And we get lucky. You know, the statistics would say, what, if you stop your Berlinta six months early, the odds are, what, 50-50, it's going to have acute stent closure or something, right? So good. So it's not a miracle that she didn't have a problem. But, you know, when you have odds like that, you don't really want to stop a medication early. But anyway, there it is. So she has reasons. And in her mind, they're very good reasons. Um, and they're very for reasons. And the harder you push against those reasons, the harder she pushes back. And largely, the only reason she comes to see me is that we have somehow developed a trusting relationship. And so I know that when she has fired doctors in the past, it's mainly because they've insisted on things. And she doesn't feel heard and she doesn't feel listened to mm -hmm. and she doesn't feel respected. And so part of this dance is allowing her to make some of these decisions, even when I think they're really bad decisions. Mm -hmm. That's hard. You know, I've had, I think we've all had uh, patients that we've, we've had this dance with, so to speak, that, that you call it. And, you know, and, and sometimes, uh, you know, some of the phrases that I've used with patients in the past is, you know, I I'm here to make recommendations and it's obviously your role to decide if you're going to follow my recommendations. It's not going to go home and make sure you're going to take your medications or anything. You come to me because I assume you respect my my opinion and, and my training. That's why you keep coming to me. And it sounds like she keeps coming to you too. You know, she keeps coming back, you know, even though she's not necessarily following your, your strictest recommendations. I think, I think that's so interesting. So why do you think it is that she keeps coming back to you? Is it because you, you, you listen? <laughs> I say to patients something kind of similar, which is, you know, my job is to point out the signs that tell you if you go down this road, this is what's likely to happen. If you go down this road, it's what's likely to happen. And your job is to choose which one of those roads you want to go down. Mm -hmm. um, but why does she keep coming back to me? I don't know. She loves to come back, though. I'll tell you, you know, early on in tears one day and she had had some interaction with she was telling me about an interaction with another doctor and I made her a cup of tea and we sat down and we didn't really talk an, about her diabetes that day or about her heart disease or anything. I just kind of listen to what was on her mind. And she keeps talking about that cup of tea as if we have tea every time and we don't like that was sort of a one time thing. But it it meant a lot to her. I think that I listen to her and I respect her decision making mm -hmm. and I support it in the sense that I will say to her and I can say to her, I think that's the craziest thing I ever heard. Like, I cannot believe you're walking around with triglycerides of 2000. You're lucky you don't have pancreatitis. You're lucky you're alive. This makes me so uncomfortable as you're as your doctor to look at this, we need to have a plan. And she'll give me this very long explanation of why. And I'll say, it's still crazy. This is, there's a medicine that will make this better, that will make you live longer. And she 
she said to me last time I saw her, she said, I think my, my time on earth is short. Mm. I am not interested in anything that's going to prolong my life. But if you can find something that will give me more energy and help my fatigue and help my quality of life, I'm all ears. But I don't care. You may, you know, from your standpoint, I understand you're a doctor. You want to make me live longer. Uh, it's not what I care about. So her priorities and mine are a little bit different. So she's talks almost like a 90 year old, you know, just make the quality of my life better and don't prolong it. She's 54. So again, who am I to say that's a lot of judgment? She's clearly got a lot of depression. She's got a lot of anxiety. She's very consistent. And every time we have these conversations, she says the exact same things. And so I do know that she's stubbornly convinced of these things. And there is no role for me to come in there and change her mind. So yes, why does she come back? I think she feels supported and listened to. And there are little things we can do. So we can talk about the relevance of exercise in someone with peripheral arterial disease, which she also has, and the importance of walking in someone whose triglycerides are 2000, which, and she, she started a walking program. And that was great. And we can talk about if she doesn't want to take fish oil, can she eat you know, four to six servings of fatty fish a week, maybe that'll help a little bit. And can she cut back on her carbs? And so she's willing to do a few things, just not all of it. And she wants to be known as a person. She does. So a few years back, I invited her to come to Harvard Medical School because every year we we interview a few patients in front of the whole class in the amphitheater. So there's mm -hmm. 171st year medical students and we bring in a few patients who have interesting stories. And she had a really interesting experience as a woman with a heart attack where she went in with atypical symptoms and she was told she was having a panic attack and she was put in the waiting room for three more hours while she was having a heart attack and how she felt about that and how it felt the second time she came in with a second heart attack. And again, they told her she was having anxiety. So anyway, she has, she has had a lot of terrible experiences with the medical profession and she's very articulate and reflective when she talks about them. So anyway, I brought her in and I interviewed her about these experiences and the students just loved her and they they swarmed her afterwards with gratitude and thank yous and questions. And I think it really helped her feel heard. The students in particular have a really lovely way of expressing their gratitude. And for them, there's no agenda, right? They don't worry about her triglycerides being 2000. They just want to hear... <laughs> hear her story and she can do that. And so for five years, she would come every year and do this and tell these stories. And I think it was really good for her to feel respected and beloved by the students. There was one student after who drew a picture of her with her boxing gloves and her heart and, and gave her a copy and invited her to this gallery exhibit. It was really lovely. So she felt honored and well-deserved because she's, for someone who is so, uh, stubbornly against medicine. She's super educated and intelligent and thoughtful. It's just mm -hmm. that she's got this funny paradox of how she wants to be treated. You know what it is about her that the medical students really liked? Was it her honesty? Was it her, uh, did she have charisma? What was it do you think that they were so drawn to? It's so funny. She Charisma is a funny word because no, she'll come in and for about a week beforehand, she'll call me and be, I'm not sure I can do this. I, they're going to hate me. I, I have nothing to say. I'm so boring. And then she'll come in and I'll meet her 15 minutes ahead and she's sweating bullets and she's bright red and she brings her friend because her friend can be her moral support. And up until the last minute, she's like, I, I can't, I can't do it. There's, and all you can do this, Eileen, they love you. It's wonderful. So it's certainly not that, but I think maybe that very vulnerability and her 
willingness to be out there. And she'll say to them, I'm sweating so much in front of you all. You can tell how nervous I am. And we kind of make a joke out of it. And they're nervous too, right? Because they're just learning how to do this. So they love her authenticity and her vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. And her humanity. And her humanity. I think that's kind of what it is. And, you know, and I think that's so important to in medical school education, too, is also to remind students that, you know, that that medicine is humanity. And these this is this is why you're in it. And so you have to meet that, you know, you can read about the disease in the book and you can you know go on rounds. And, you know, a lot of times it's just sort of talking about the disease rather than the person. But maybe what she brings to it is that, you know, that just the humanity and this is the person who thinks and makes decisions and doesn't follow the textbook, it sounds like. So, and also the way that you, you know, have to work with her and navigate with her, I think shows a lot about your humanity uh, and your willingness to listen and respect where she's coming from, even though it goes against probably everything that you've been taught, especially as a cardiologist and, and you've seen some, you know, bad outcomes. So that's also where you're coming from, right? I mean, you've seen people in a similar situation with horrible outcomes. And I'm sure that that's what you're thinking of when you look at her numbers and, you know, so it's hard. I think it's a hard situation. It is hard. Although I'll say, as I get older, it's a lot easier for me to sit with a patient and not take it personally, that they're not going to take this medicine and not feel like a failure and take myself out of it a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, when starting out as a cardiologist, you rely on those guidelines and those checklists and you, you know, everybody has to leave the hospital with aspirin, beta blocker and a statin, no matter what. And if somebody kept smoking, for example, and I advised them to quit smoking, like my, my blood would boil and I couldn't understand and how could they do that? Now I'm like, you know what? You're a grown up. You're going to make your decisions. I can do my best to explain why I think it's important for you to quit smoking, but it's ultimately your decision. So same thing with, with Eileen. I think 20 years ago, I would have had a really hard time with her and I would have just butted heads. And and I, every time she left it, partly because it would be about me worrying about her. And I don't like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I feel angry that she's putting that on me, but you know what? It's not about me. Mm-hmm. It's about her. So I'm old enough now. <laughs> that even though, yes, I've seen a lot of bad things happen to people, it's not my fault. I do the best I can. And I think it's she's better off with me than with a cardiologist who won't treat her well. So I can't fix her, but I can at least listen to her, help her feel like a human being and do the best I can with the the bits of it that we can work with. The other part that really deserves underscoring is that she comes back there are so many people who would choose a different way of handling their lives than what the doctor suggests and they don't come back because that's how they're going to navigate that decision and she's clearly a person in extreme need of a cardiologist and so it's um it's lovely that she's like willing to keep you in her life for who knows what might happen in some other decision-making moment at some other time. Yes. I think she's scared and she does. Sometimes she'll disappear. She will disappear for six months or eight months and call and say, you know what? I've, I've been having chest pain for three days. Can I come in and get an EKG? And she'll come in and get an EKG. And once one of those times I said, you know what? I really need to send you straight to the hospital. And she went, she went and she had, a left main stenosis that got ballooned. And, you know, so she does 
at the end of the day, I think she does want to live, even though she says those things about her, her time is short and she doesn't. So I think she does know that I'm there for her. And when the chips are down, that I'll help her get the care that she needs. And so she does keep that relationship mostly. I think it's so interesting, but just with her personality, I mean, you've mentioned that she does have anxiety. That's something that you've recognized as part of her. Do you have any idea where that, where that medical health anxiety comes from? I mean, have you gone back and back in time and kind of explored that at all with her? So first off, she's adopted, which may have something to do with the trust issue. And then when she was a young woman, she had two miscarriages and it broke her heart. She wanted more than anything to have a baby. And then her fiance died in a car crash. Mm-hmm. And I think right around there, everything fell apart. And I think that she felt very, very alone in the world and sees the world through a lens of nobody cares about me. And they're just doing procedures on me because they can bill for it. And I think she has a little cynicism about that. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's part of it. Also, she's had cancer too. She had ovarian cancer and had a and uterine cancer. Oh my had a goodness. This woman has been through a lot. Yeah, she has. So I think she's sort of faced death down a couple of times and then then because of the miscarriages and her aloneness, she kind of gets this really tough mm-hmm. exterior. But inside she's super vulnerable and scared. So I think with me, she can show that. And I think a lot of times she puts up the hard shell and doesn't show it. She lives with her cat and she, this cat, she literally sends me pictures of this cat like a lot and on his birthday and his, it is adorable, but like, there's definitely something there that that's really her source of joy and trust in the world is her cat. So you learned all of that medical history over a decade or longer of taking care of her like she's telling you all that yes it comes out in dribs and drabs Mm -hmm. but (laughs) but really actually some of it was when she started having heart disease at such a young age there's kind of a short list of the things you start to look for you know did she have an autoimmune disease does she have a hypercoagulable state does is there something something inflammatory going on and the doctors before me i have to say did a great job. So actually a lot of this came before I even met her. They had worked her up for a lot of things and whether there was something else we were missing and basically came up with nothing. Does she have a history of just going from doctor to doctor to doctor? I don't know. Since you're a cardiologist, you know, does she have a primary care doctor? Does she have other doctors that care for her? Is there a care team? Just curious to know what her previous relationships have been like. So it's a great question. She does have a primary care doctor in the community. So she lives pretty far away from Boston and doesn't see the primary care doctor very often, doesn't have a real close relationship with her PCP. For example, she wanted exemption from the flu shot and from the COVID vaccine because she works in a healthcare setting and it was mandatory that she get that and her PCP wouldn't sign it. And so she would come to me for that kind of thing. And of course, She got it. She got, we had a long conversation about why that was a bad idea Mm -hmm. to get exempt. Um, But yeah, no, I wouldn't say it's a team. In fact, I've never spoken to her primary care doctor. That's interesting. And so does she, she doesn't have an endocrinologist or anybody, even though she's got this, you know, this uncontrolled diabetes, it's just. 
It kind of falls in your lap, doesn't it? Well, I think she knows that if she were to go to an endocrinologist, yeah. they would flip out. I'm sure. And I'm she, sure. He doesn't want you know, to- I've, I've been in that position too, where I have patients that, you know, are, for whatever reason, don't want to take medicines or, uh, you know, are fearful of them or feel that you know, there's other means that they can do it. I kind of feel like I'm failing them somehow. Um, but I think that's sort of like what you said, just after years, you sort of have to take the you out of it. You know, as providers, we do our best to, to guide our patients and they can take it or leave it, I guess. But, you know, I've been hesitant to refer patients out to other specialists, just knowing that they'll probably have a pretty aggressive take on their condition. And that's not necessarily where you have to meet this person. I think it's great when you called it a dance. It, it is somewhat of a dance, you know, a few steps forward, a few steps back, turning around, pivoting here. Not yeah. a fun dance. No, that I would no, do. it's a little, a little anxiety provoking for, for us as providers. I mean, I'm sure that on some level, you're just sort of waiting for that event yeah. because in her case, it almost seems ine- inevitable, doesn't it? It is. It's just a question of when, and it's, sort of a miracle it hasn't been until now. Mm. But you're right. Why send to an endocrinologist when I know exactly what's going to happen? You've talked about how you're, um, you know, in your maturity, you've kind of let go of the the pressure that you used to put on yourself to make her decide what you wanted her to decide. I'm interested in that. I'm also interested in what, if any, of her goals of care have changed since you first met her. Yes, she's always been focused on quality of life, I have to say. That hasn't changed. She has become a little bit more morbid and more convinced that she is going to die soon in recent years. I think that that was really heightened during the pandemic. I think as we've gotten to know each other and we've lived through these last three years of kind of worse anxiety and worse fear and more seclusion... I guess I'm feeling a little resigned as well, that there's just not that much I can do. And in fact, as I was getting ready to talk with you about her and I was just looking up my notes, I realized that it's been four months since I checked that triglycerides of 2000. And I was supposed to check it again in six weeks after she started walking and eating a better diet. And I haven't. And I'm sure I put the order in and I'm sure she hasn't gone. So anyway, I feel like I need to get back involved here because I do think that even though she isn't coming out and looking for more care, I think she will accept it if I reach out to her. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a little hard to know what is my role here. It's, I can't put it all on her. So I, I, I think know. also it's so hard to know when a person will have like an internal conversion in the way they're approaching their care. I mean, I've certainly had that happen to me where someone was getting care from an outside specialist in this case, the person was doing something that's not the medical standard. And I explained that I was uncomfortable with that. And that's not the way I would handle it. And she continued to see this non-standard doctor and probably for 10 years continued to get care that I felt was inappropriate from this person. And then eventually she kind of started to change her tune. And she, she didn't want to go see a different specialist, but she at least would let me pursue something that I thought our standard. Um, and it was such a surprise to me. I couldn't even imagine her wanting to do that because she had directly chosen the non-standard of care line of treatment mm. for such a long time. And so then she was kind of mad that I hadn't referred her to an endocrinologist. And I thought, well, for 10 years, you've been kind of refusing to see a real endocrinologist. 
so, but somewhere there was a shift in her, you know, like whether it was her own sense of her vulnerability changed or her recognition that, you know, maybe there were some side effects that were not as good this decade as they were the previous decade. Um, but it was hard for me to pick up when she had that switch. So interesting when people seek alternate providers or non-mainstream providers, I think sometimes initially it's because those providers are really good listeners and spend a lot of time and pay a lot of attention. And that's people want to feel heard because I think the modern medical system, the healthcare system doesn't do a great job at nurturing people and listening and hearing. I think Mm -hmm. obviously you guys are different, but I think that I have a lot of patients who have this so-called post-treatment Lyme disease or chronic Lyme. Mm -hmm. You all do too, right? And they go to all sorts of alternative providers who do, you know, ultraviolet light therapy and chelation and stem cell treatment and things like that. And and then often I think A, because it's not a miracle cure and B, because it's very expensive and C, because they realize that their other doctors are actually sticking with them and do want to give them care and will pay attention and will listen. Then they do often come back, but not always. It's interesting. I wonder why your patient did, but Eileen never did that. Eileen never went off looking for somebody else. Mm-hmm. She just didn't want anything. Mm-hmm. But at that, at there are moments that she did do something like she took the Brintilix for six months after her stent. So she at least did something. So that's like a little mini conversion in her mind of for this time, I'm going to take this medicine because I believe for this short time, I'll accept that yes. path. Yeah. And so who knows, like if there's another moment in her life coming up where she's going to say, you know what, I'm differently scared now. And somebody took that triglyceride medicine or somebody lost 40 pounds on the new diabetes medicines. And I'm wonder about that. Mm -hmm. And so just having the relationship as a possible place for that conversion moment to enter would be good. Yes. No, that's a really good point because you're right. If, if her cousin had a bad reaction on this medicine and then another cousin had a good reaction on that one, if those are the people she trusts and that's the kind of information that means something to her, then maybe that could happen. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. A lot of times what I see with my patients is that I help scare a lot of times will kind of shake them up a little bit. Those near-death experiences almost close the door even further to wanting to do anything. And I just think that's so fascinating to figure out you know, what, what it is about her and you know maybe her anxiety. And I, it'd just be interesting to explore why she closes the door like that, why it's so black and white for her. Yeah. One thing that's interesting about her is that she more readily accepts procedures, the stents anyway, than the medications. Hmm. And maybe because those first stents before anything else had really come up went smoothly and she realized that that's a procedure it's done. And all you'd have to do is take that blood thinner for a few months. Maybe that was kind of a signal to her that once you fix the problem, kind of like surgery, it's fixed for a period of time. Mm -hmm. And, and it's also a more immediate feedback that you're having chest pain. You get a stent, the pain goes away the EKG Mm. looks better. Everybody pats you on the back. You did great. Whereas the pills, you know, you're treating something that doesn't feel bad. You're taking a diabetes pill, but the diabetes doesn't immediately feel bad. You don't feel better. You Mm. don't feel better when you take a statin, right? You don't feel better when you take blood pressure meds. 
these are all silent killers and doing their job silently. So maybe in a way it's, it's that kind of feeling like, what's the point? I'm going to take a pill that's going to make me sick and it's not going to make me feel better. And who cares if it makes me live longer because that's not my goal. Yeah, no, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head a lot of times in, in primary care. So much of what we do is preventative medicine. And it is hard to, you know, give the, give a person that cell that says, well, in 20 years, we're going to stop you from having that heart attack or, you know, whatever it is. And it's, it's not really a tangible fix. Although in the long term, it's, I w I would argue that your quality of life is better if you don't have a stroke and then you're, you know, you're left with maybe some deficits or whatever, but um, but, but no, it is, it is a hard sell. And the other thing, well, a lot of in, in primary care and in cardiology, there's so much behavior change involved mm. in prevention and, you know, with exercise and eating right. And so, you know, is she willing to do those approaches? Yes. So she quit smoking when she had her first heart attack and she generally eats a pretty healthy diet. And when we talk about it, she gets better for a few months and she does her walking and her boxing. So yes, she's actually pretty good about that. The lifestyle piece, not perfect, but who of, who of us is perfect. How do your partners feel about her? That's such an interesting question. So one of my partners was covering when I sent her into the hospital. Fortunately, it's somebody who's quite like-minded with me because I have several partners and some of them would have been brusque and rough with her. And this one was very gentle and kind and sat down with her and sat at the bed instead of standing over her. And But he did agree that she was a challenge to manage. But in the hospital, she was fine. So she took the meds in the hospital and then she came out, you know, for her follow-up visit with me and you know, decided what she was not going to continue taking. But she doesn't call, you know, it's not like she's calling on the weekend, my coverage and they're dealing with her. So my other partners have never met her, but they'd be horrified, right? If I ran this case by them, my male partners, especially, I have to say are a little bit less willing to accept this range of, of, mm -hmm behavior, which is why, you know, for example, I've had another patient who left one of my male partners because he said, next time you come back, I want to, I want you to have lost 40 pounds. Mm -hmm. And she said, I couldn't go back to him because I didn't lose 40 pounds. In fact, I gained five, but I need a cardiologist. So she came to me and I was like, okay, well, let's work with what we've got here. And, but I think sometimes, and it doesn't really have to do with necessarily with being a male doctor or a female doctor, but I do think some doctors, especially younger doctors, feel that their role is to tell you what to do and they expect mm. you to go do it. It's not really a conversation. There have also been instances where if you don't do that, I mean, it sounds like this, this person decided not to go back, but I mean, some, some patients have been discharged from their doctors for yeah. not following their instructions. And I mean, I guess you can make the argument that I'm not being an effective provider for this patient, but then you take a, a further step back and say, well, who will be? So it's, it's, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. And it sounds like, this woman, even though her triglycerides are really high and she's not taking her statin and, you know, not following the, the, the cardiology guidelines. I mean, I, it still sounds like you are, you know, a wonderful provider for her, probably the best provider that, that she could possibly have. So, you know, letting her go wouldn't, I can't even imagine that even, you know, even considering that at this point, because where else would she go? Right. She probably wouldn't go to another cardiologist is my guess no. because she doesn't mm -hmm. like to take the chance until she finds out if someone is going to be the kind of doctor she can talk with. It's really a painful interaction. In fact, when I had to send her to the hospital, she she made me before she went 
find out who was on call for the cath lab. <laughs> and of those three doctors, could the one who did it two times ago be the one who did her this time, did the cath, and not the last one because that person didn't talk to her respectfully. And we we did make some phone calls and tried to pave the way mm-hmm. for a smooth cath experience. But yes, she really, really, really doesn't take well to doctors treating her the way most doctors would treat her. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's true. Play. And I think just, and probably every time she has an experience like that, her health anxiety, her medical anxiety probably just, you know, once again, gets triggered and goes through, goes through the roof. Yes. And it makes the next five times really hard. So absolutely. The thing I keep thinking about in what you're saying is just how critical it is for every one of us, uh, us included to feel heard. And so what do we provide, you know, how can we provide a way within the exam room to get a patient to tell their story and to help them feel heard, which is something we, we might not think that that should be the first goal because we're kind of thinking treatment, diagnostic workup and treatment. And maybe even before all of that, it's how can this person be known as a human, as a, you know, a person with her own way of deciding whatever she's going to decide. And I just wonder what in her, what would have been different in her life if, if she had felt heard 10 years before she got to you somewhere along the healthcare line. And I don't fault the doctors who were taking care of her because I do think they were listening to her. I just think they couldn't continue to be responsible for her care when mm-hmm. they were seeing how sort of self-destructive she was being. I think a lot of doctors are worried about lawsuits and, you know, okay, my 40-year-old patient drops dead of a heart attack. How could I have let that happen? People get sued for that kind of thing. When it's very hard to explain in a note, an office note, a progress note, to take that conversation that just took 45 minutes and put it into three sentences about why she's walking out my door with a triglyceride Mm -hmm. of 2000. You know, there's a lot behind that. But I think if you take the the fear of a malpractice lawsuit, you take the egos that most of us have and that need to be the hero and you the frustration of a patient who needs to sit here for 45 minutes before finally it'll come out like what is going on. You know, nobody has that kind of time in a normal Mm -hmm cardiology mm-hmm. visit, they might have 15 minutes. And so it's hard. The doctors she was seeing were very good, except they were operating in a system that didn't give them the luxury of having the time to sit with her and being accessible to her and establishing a trusting relationship with her. I'm fortunate in my practice, I can sit for 45, 60 minutes with a patient. And, and that's what it takes with some of these patients to, to get to the heart of it and to figure out how can we come up with some kind of a plan here that's sort of helpful, even if it's not what I would have chosen for you. So I don't think the healthcare system is ever going to be really ready for the Eileen's of the world, the way it works. And she's not the only one. I mean, I think right. you know, there's a lot of people out there who, who need, uh, you know, a provider that that will listen and will take time to address their needs and treat them like a human being. Again, finding that, that, that human piece, that humanity in, in medicine, that sadly is is missing in a lot of different areas right now. I teach first year medical students and 
And they actually take these courses where they understand they're supposed to sit down and they're supposed to reflect back. I hear you're saying this Mm -hmm. and they're supposed to nod their head and ask open-ended questions. And, and then after they get really good at that, they're thrown into their internship where they're admitting six patients a night. And now the emphasis is, you know, get your work done and get the orders in and discharge them as quickly as you can. And it's really a disconnect between what I think most doctors know they should and want to do mm-hmm. and what they're able to do. Right. They put the they put chairs, foldable chairs in the hospital room so that every doctor can come in and take the foldable chair off of the wall and sit down next to the patient. And it's a better way to do medicine. But I think it's often somewhat dreaded because if people have 15 patients to see while they're in the hospital, taking that chair down and sitting down feels weighty. And it invites a patient to talk to you. Mm -hmm. God forbid you're going to invite them to tell you how they're actually feeling. Mm -hmm. That takes some time. I'm just thinking about that. I love the last thing that you said about we, you know, we're going to try to come up with some plan that's like tolerable, not really what we would have wanted. And, but I kind of wonder what she would have said. Would she feel like this is a tolerable second best option or would she feel like this is the person who's really really heard me and for now this is what I'm looking to get out of this and this is the best way to go forward thank you I do hope that she feels like we can come up with a decent plan even if I'm leaving there feeling really worried and upset Mm -hmm. she hopefully isn't (laughs) (laughs) then I've done my job Yeah. yeah Well, I think uh, the conversation we had today was was wonderful. I think we, we hit on some wonderful topics. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you being um, with us today on the podcast and uh, hope that we get to, uh, to well, chat Well, thank you soon. both so much. It's such an honor to have this space to talk about the everyday work we do. It is, it is wonderful and we don't do it often enough. Thank you, Dara, for joining Cecily and me today in such a meaningful conversation. You have created a real relationship with a patient with very high needs who decides not to pursue many treatments that would be medically helpful for her. I know you don't have tea with every patient, but that was clearly the beginning of helping this person feel heard. And you've highlighted through this relationship that sometimes that's the most important thing we provide in a good physician-patient relationship time, our full attention, and recognizing one another's humanness. Thank you. Living Breathing Medicine is a podcast by Dr. Cecily Havert and Dr. Natasha Beauvais, two family physicians exploring compassion and humanity in medicine. Our producer is Melody Rowell. Find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and links in our show notes. And find us back here in two weeks. Until then, be well and take good care.